Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Spartan Combat. They're our title sponsor here on the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast, and it would mean the world to me if you would check out SpartanCombat.com. We just released the website. It's a whole new design, bunch of new gear on there. Check it out, SpartanCombat.com. So when I made the team, I just know in my heart of hearts, that was just pure um, elation. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort it humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. I'm your host, Ryan Warner. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Olympic gold medalist Brandon Slay, the pride of Armarillo, Texas. He graces us with his presence and tells the tale that's almost unbelievable. In the spring of 2000, he entered the U.S. Open as the seventh seed. And five, six months later, he's Olympic gold medalist. It's an unbelievable story. I hope you enjoy it. Fan of the week goes to my man, Nathaniel J. Soroga, a state champ for the great Southeast Polk High School out of the Des Moines, Iowa area. Thank you so much for listening, Nathaniel. I appreciate it. And folks, if you want to support this show, please support our sponsor, Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com to check out their new gear. They have some sick Kyle Dake threads going on at SpartanCombat.com. That's it, folks. Let's get to the interview with the great Brandon Slay. Folks, we are here with Brandon Slay. Brandon, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Absolutely. Excited to talk. You've had so many epic matches, uh, one of which is in your office there when you beat Joe at the U.S. (laughs) Nationals. And, man, I I just cannot wait to get into it. Let's start with this, though. I understand when you were looking at University of Pennsylvania, you know, coming out of high school, you were a three-time state champ from Texas. But you ended up going to Foxcatcher um, as part of your recruiting trip. What do you remember about that experience? Well, I just remember that what a what a wonderful opportunity as a high school wrestler to be able to meet Dave Schultz. And I remember watching him win the gold medal when I was eight years old. I wasn't in you know there in person in LA, but I was watching it on TV, watching him win the gold medal and Mark Schultz and Bobby Weaver and Bruce Bumgarner and Randy Lewis. That was a great time for an eight-year-old to watch wrestling because, as we know, the Russians didn't come, and we we won a lot of gold medals. So 
to, to know that when I went on a recruiting trip that I was actually meeting him in person, you know, this is a guy who's an Olympic champion, who was a legend in the sport clearly already. Uh, it was just a really, it was just an honor for me. And then not only him, you know, there was a lot of other amazing wrestlers there at Foxcatcher that were around. And, you know, I was just like a kid, you know, in a candy store, uh, just excited to, to take it all in. And, and ultimately um, that wasn't the number one reason I went to Penn, but to be able to go to the Ivy league school, the Wharton school of business, and to have the opportunity to train with, with Dave Schultz out of Foxcatcher. I mean, that was just a great combination for me. And the Penn coach at the time was coach Rainia. I don't know a lot about coach. Uh, I know he's been a staple for that program. What, uh, what kind of philosophy did he bring, bring to the program when you were there? He, he loved freestyle, which was big for me. I mean, I think some college coaches, they're just, you know, they're so zoned in on folk style and they don't have the international um, flavor, you know, in, in their, uh, they, they just don't desire freestyle and Greco so much, but because he loved it, because he was actually a big fan of us going out to Foxcatcher, he encouraged his pin wrestler to go out there and train there. Then that was something that, that got me excited. But I think, Coach Raina was just a, a visionary, and I think he did a great job of selling me on being a trailblazer, you know, being a pioneer, because Penn had not had an All-American in over 30 years. Wow. So when I was being recruited to go there, it wasn't like I was meeting all these juniors and seniors that, you know, had been All-Americans, and I was just going to fit right into the program. It wasn't like that. It was more of, Brandon, we haven't had All-American in over 30 years but you could be that guy and you could help, you know, get this program, um, get the ball rolling with this program. And if you desire to be a trailblazer like that and to be, be willing to kind of have the attitude that the obstacle is the way, then this is the program for you. And so, you know, you compare that to, uh, I visited Penn state, I visited Lehigh, <laughs> I visited, you know, Wisconsin, I visited Illinois, where, you know, you go to those rooms on the wall, there's pictures of NCAA champions, and they've had tons of All-Americans. And so if I would have gone to one of those programs, it would have been more like, hey, come along board, and, you know, you can be an All-American too. And, you know, once you do, we'll pat you on the back, and you would have done your job. Where Penn, it's a totally different scenario. It, it was more of a – Coach Rain had a, had a vision that that program could be a top-10 team, and ultimately Penn was it became a top 10 team. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, you know, humbly I did, I got second in the NCAAs, 97, second, 98. So I became two-time All-American. And then that next year, um, after I graduated, Penn had three All-Americans all in one year. And then in 2000, Brett Motter won the NCAA title, right? He became NCAA champ. And then Matt Valenti comes along and wins two NCAA titles. So, uh, I mean, I was just one wrestler, you know, I was one kind of brick in the yeah. house that wrestling built there, but, that trailblazing spirit, that pioneering spirit, um, it came to fruition. So it was really special. So you, I didn't realize that that was the beginning of, was that the beginning of coach's career as well? Kind of when you were coming on? No, he'd been coaching, I think for about maybe eight years, seven or eight years. Uh, you know, interesting story about coach Raina. He took over the program when he was 23 years old. He was the youngest division one coach, you know, in the country. Wow. And so they were thinking about dropping the program at Penn. And after he graduated, you know, he was like, well, I don't want that to happen. So, you know, he stepped in as the head coach at 23. He coached Penn wrestling for, uh, I believe, 19 years. And he had 17 All-Americans, wow. um, you know, three, three NCAA champions. And then he took a break for about 12 years. And, and actually, uh, he worked for some startups 
He was very kind of had an entrepreneurial mindset, spent some time, you know, in the business world. And then he came back, thankfully, um, about four years ago. And so he took the program back over. And so it's just been great, you know, for me to run our Olympic training center, the Pennsylvania regional training center, where I don't work for Penn at all. You know, I, I run the PRTC, but clearly mm-hmm. I work really closely alongside coach Reina, um, and the, and the Penn wrestlers. That's awesome that he came back. I didn't realize that. I'll have to have him on the show. He seems like a, a visionary in his own right, and I love people like that. He's an amazing leader. I always tell people he, he was one. Of, he's one of the greatest leaders I've ever been around. And if I if I didn't believe that, I would have not um, moved my family from Colorado Springs. You know, my three kids. Now I have a I have a fourth kid. I would I would not move my family from Colorado Springs to back to the East Coast if it wasn't for. Coach Reina, you know, being here and 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 being a, a leader, you know, in this program. I gotta tell you, I saw a picture on Instagram of you smoking some brisket. The scenery out there is absolutely amazing <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I, I saw that picture. I'm like, is he in like the Swiss Alps or something? It was just beautiful. It's like a 25 pound brisket. Yeah, that was that's an area called the the endless. It's called the endless mountain range. It, it's up kind of in, in, in north central Pennsylvania. And um, you drive past Wilkes and you just kind of keep heading um, north, west, and then you get up there. And we were on about 110 acres. You know, there's a Penn alumni named Monty Kapek that um, he inherited about 110 acres from his father, who actually wrestled at Wyoming Seminary. Mm. And, um, you know, Monty wrestled in high school outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania. And so Monty just, he has some land there. He has a wrestling room there. And, and so he invited us during this COVID situation when we couldn't train at Penn. He said, hey, come up here. You can stay on, um, you can stay on our land. You can train in the wrestling room. And, you know, there's a bunch of great hikes and, you know, waterfalls you can jump off of. So we, we took about, I think we took about 17 guys up there and we trained for, for a full week. And it was really, it was really magical. So yeah, we trained, but like you said, we, uh, um, we had a lot of time on our hands in, in, in the middle of the day. So yeah, I, I got a, I got a, a 15 pound brisket and a 10 pound brisket and we smoked those up for about eight or nine hours. And so the guys destroyed all 25 pounds of meat. <laughs> so it was, it was a, it was a wonderful day for, uh, for the PRTC. It looked awesome. And I, again, I, I could see why I'd move your family back there. And obviously you have the long history there. Um, but let's get into it. One of the topics I am most excited to talk about is your rivalry with Joe Williams. Uh, I'm from Chicago. We're rec- I'm not from Chicago. I'm from Illinois. We're recording this in Chicago. <laughs> and anyone who's listening to this show is going to shoot me if you're saying this, but I was obsessed with Joe Williams. Um, and I, I mentioned it almost every episode. So they're probably sick to death of me hearing this, but you know, as a kid, <laughs> He was just from Illinois. He wrestled at Iowa. He was awesome. He won the Midlands like a hundred times. So uh, he was, he was a huge idol of mine. And, and I know you wrestled him a bunch of times. When was your first match? Like when did the rival really, really start? So we wrestled um, three times in college. He, he beat me in Iowa Penn duel. He beat me, mentioned Midlands, one of those Midlands championships he won. He beat me in the finals. <laughs> And then, so I was 0-2 against him, and then I wrestled him my senior year, his senior year as well. And uh, the Nationals were in Cleveland at Cleveland State that year, 1998. So I lost to him in the finals of the NCAAs. Um, so after getting second the year before, you know, I have Joe Williams going for his third NCAA title in a row. So, I mean, he was clearly, a, you know, a challenging opponent to have in that match, but lost that match. And then the next year, we, we both came out of college and, we're both on the senior circuit. And then we wrestled in the quarterfinals of the U S open and it was two to two and we went to overtime 
and he got in on a single leg in overtime and um, they end up, you know, he didn't finish it all the way, but he kind of pushed me up to the edge and they gave him one point in overtime. So he beat me in overtime three to two, but you know, the, the gap was, um, it was closing. And so that was the fourth time I'd lost to him, Ryan. And then he went on to make the world team that year. He got fourth in the world and really should have really should have got the bronze. He was wrestling a guy from Turkey in Turkey. Uh-oh. And so it was really um, the deck was stacked against him in that match. And, um, but he ended up getting fourth place, which was great because he qualified our weight class, 76 kilos for the Olympic games. So I'm really thankful, you know, for Joe Williams for doing that. Yeah. And then I had him in the national finals in 2000, which, you know, that's, that's a picture of that. That's dun, a painting dun, dun. Of, of that match. Yeah. <laughs> right gonna, that man, I watched that match. I didn't realize, you know, just how much distance you had created. Cause the match really wasn't that close. And you know, I'm watching the match. I'm thinking, did they have push out rules back then? Because they were get, if they did, you would have you would have got a lot because you did a lot of doubles. We just blast people off. Um, but so before you closed the gap in '99, were were they always pretty close and competitive matches? Um, no, uh, the the first time I wrestled him, I believe it was an Iowa duel. I wasn't, I didn't come close to taking him down or. Um, never really rode him. I mean, he was really explosive getting out from the bottom and there wasn't, I mean, I didn't, I clearly got escape points, but I didn't really sniff a takedown against him that first time. You know, the second time I felt a little bit more comfortable. Um, the third time I wrestled him in the NCAA finals, I, I did not listen to my, to coach Reina very well. <laughs> he said that that need to be really patient. Um, because Joe is a great counterattacker. I mean, he typically doesn't come out and shoot eight times. He allows people to attack him, and then he counterattacks. He's one of the best counterattackers of all time. So Coach Rainer was like, hey, let's just be really patient, kind of be like a patient sniper, and, you know, don't take the, the shot unless it's really, really, really there, and let's allow this match to go into the second period, third period, and then and if there's opportunity at the very end or clearly you take into overtime, that's the time to really pick it up on him. But that was uh, the advice from Coach Rainer. But I think I just got really excited. You run up on the stage at the NCAA tournament. They announce your name, you know, Brendan Slade. You run out there and you get up on the stage and, you know, there's 18,000 people screaming for you. And so, like, I, you know, the whole entire strategy, I punted, you know, on first down. <laughs> and, you know, I went out and got really aggressive and started attacking him. And clearly, like, he he counterattacks me, takes me down. I get in a hole, which is what happens with Joe Williams. You get behind. And then you have to start attacking because you're behind. And then you're just – you're feeding right into his game plan. So – um, I, I just, I wasn't that coachable that match. Um, but then the next, the fourth time I wrestled them, um, you know, I, I began to be a lot more patient and I think that patience ultimately paid off. Yeah. He's like a sniper just waiting for a mistake and then oh. he'll go. I got to think coach Gable was probably frustrated a number of times because you never really saw him open up to, uh, to that, you know, quote unquote, Iowa style where he's just going, 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 but you know, everyone has their own, uh, their own system and and that yeah. was his yeah that match i mean to kind of get back to that match that you were asking about is uh, i think what happened is we got there on the edge and you know my plan wasn't to try to front headlock him you know that wasn't we didn't talk about that but i got in a front headlock right there on the edge and you know gut wrench is one of my best moves and i had a, a tight a tight front headlock and i just thought man i'm right here on the edge i'm just going to take the risk and you know i went for it and i got the two points and so again then me having the lead changed things so then when I'm up to zero and, and I have the lead, then it was okay to take more risk because I had the lead. And so 
there was a situation where we were kind of wrestling there in the center and um, I, I snapped him and he reached. And so I snapped post and I was able to level change and kind of get some good handles on the back of his legs. And then of course, you know, you know I'm from Texas. I played middle linebacker and nose guard and football and you get in like on a tackle like that. You're just taught to run your feet, run your feet, right? Run, 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 run. So, you know, I ran him as far as I possibly could run him to make sure I secured that point. Thankfully he landed on his, you know, on his elbows and back then feet to back was three points. So, you know, I got ahead 5-0, and then again, that's a totally different match. I'm not used to being ahead of Joe Williams 5-0, and then he was in the hole, so then he had to come to me. And then we started coming to me. That allowed me to just head block, control the center, put him on the edge a lot, and, and you know, I was, I was finally in the driver's seat in that match, which, you know, looking back on it, I, I would much rather win that match, Ryan, and be one and four against him, win that match than the other three, truthfully, mm-hmm. because by winning that match, that put me in the finals – of the Olympic trials in 2000. And then, you know, Joe Williams had to go through the mini tournament with Sean Bormet, Steve Marinetti, um, you know, Brian Dolph, who ended up clearly beating Joe. And, and then I had to, I had to end up wrestling my college wrestling coach, my assistant college wrestling coach in the finals to make the Olympic team, you know, which is a whole nother story. Wow. So that's the thing that I love about this story. The stakes were super high. I mean, this is April of the Olympic year, almost the exact same time we're in right now. Um, and so you come into the U S open that year as the seventh seed, you've wrestled Joe in the finals, you win that match. I mean, how many people do you think would have predicted that you would be, you know, on that Olympic team going into it? I don't think most people would have predicted that. Um, most people would have thought Joe Williams was going to be on the team again. He was fourth in the world the year before, as you know, he's one of the most successful American wrestlers of all time. So I think, uh, you know, the odds would have been on him to make the team, but that's why we have sport and that's why we have to wrestle the matches, you know, but from my perspective, I really believed I could beat him. You know, it wasn't just like, man, I I hope I can. Like I really believed that I could beat him because you got to remember again, the last time I wrestled him, um, we went overtime Mm -hmm. and I I thought, I mean, I'm, I'm right there. This guy's fourth in the world really should have been third in the world. And then I lost him in overtime. So I think this is where it's really important as an athlete, kind of your self-talk and, and what you deeply believe in your heart and mind. I believed that because Joe Williams was third or fourth in the world and I lost him in overtime than, than I was, that's where I was. And so I saw myself that way and I wrestled that way. I trained that way. I believed that that's who I could be. So then going into that match, I, I really believed I could beat him. If again, I was coachable and I listened to my coaches and I wasn't overly aggressive and I was patient and I finally um, wasn't stubborn. I finally listened to my coaches and, and being coachable paid off that match. Yeah. I mean, and that was just the first of many icons you had knock off that summer before we get to your Olympic trials run in the Olympics. Take me back to spring of 99. You graduate from Penn. What do you I think it was 99, 98, somewhere in there. 1998. So what do you do from graduating to 2000? Are you training at Penn? No, I moved out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. You know, being from Amarillo, Texas, I'm, you know, just kind of grew up in the South, you know, Southwest. I'd put my five years into the Northeast. So I was really ready to head back, head back home, head back. I'm, I love the mountains. I love snow skiing. Um, and so like, I was, I was really excited. It's, it's no offense to Penn or Philadelphia, but at that stage of my life, I was excited, you know, to head out West. And I was really excited to move to the Olympic training center. And Bruce Burnett was the national coach at that period of time. And, and Bruce had been uh, my, 
my cadet world team coach a couple of times. So I'd had a, mm-hmm. had a, a existing relationship with him. So I was excited to move there. I was excited to wrestle under Bruce Burnett. And then thankfully the, the same time I was coming in to move at the Olympic training center to, to be a resident athlete there, they hired Kevin Jackson to be the resident coach. So Kevin Jackson became, you know, my, my personal coach there. And so he coached me those two years as I was, you know, training for Sydney. What is a day in the life like living at the Olympic training center as a resident athlete? <laughs> well, I would tell you it was a lot easier than a day as a student athlete at Penn. When yeah. you have four or five classes, right. And, and, and you're meeting at the football stadium to run sprints, you know, intervals, mile warm up, you know, two, four hundreds, you know, five, six, two hundreds, 10, one hundreds. Right. And then you go to eat breakfast and then you go to class all day. Then you come back and train right in the afternoon and then you go back and study. So being a student athlete at Penn, I would say life was a lot more challenging. And then when I got out to the Olympic training center, I was like, all, all I have to do now is just lift weights and wrestle. That's it. So, you know, relatively speaking, it was really kind of a breath of fresh air where I could, I could really zone in and focus on my strength and conditioning to really focus on the technical aspects that I knew uh, that I needed to improve upon. If I was going to be the national champion, if I was going to make the Olympic team. And then if I was going to beat this guy named Satyev, I knew that there was gonna, a lot of work that needed to be done, you know, just to, to reverse back a little bit in 1996, I'm in Atlanta. I'm there. I'm in the stands. I'm watching Satya win the gold medal, watching him beat Kenny Monday. And as I'm sitting there looking at this guy, I believe he was 21 that summer. Uh, we're both the same age. He was 21. I was 21. I'm sitting up there in the stands as a, as a third year at Penn looking at this guy going, if I'm going to be Olympic champion, that's the guy I'm going to have to beat. So I knew when I got to the Olympic training center that um, there was just going to have to be some changes that were going to take place in my life. And, and being there really gave me the focus to get zoned in, to make those changes. And, and what were they? Were they technical? Or were they conditioning? And Yeah, I think there was a technical piece for, for me because Brian Doff was my coach, uh, assistant coach in college. Brian Doff was very technical. He's really great at um, controlling the tie with the underhook, snap hooks. Like Training with him all those years, I developed a snap hook. I developed a, an aggressive hand fight. Like I really liked hand fighting, digging underhooks, being physical with my hands, but I, I did not um, learn how to attack from space um, as well as I, as I needed to. And so, again, I felt like I had the hand fighting game. Um, I, I was pretty solid there, but I needed to learn how to level change and blow through people from space. And then again, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful to God for this. He happened to give me a coach and Kevin Jackson, who was really great at that. So, you know, Brian Dolph taught me how to snap hook and hand fight and wrestle in tight. And then when I spent those two years with Kevin Jackson, he did a great job of teaching me how to create motion, to punch, fake, get the guy to reach and level change, you know, and, and blow through guys with my double leg. And so were you competing a lot when you were at Colorado or just locking in and training for months on end? Well, you don't, you don't compete to the same level when you, let's call it become a professional. You know, when you get out of college and become a pro, you don't, you don't wrestle. It's not like the big 10 schedule, right? Like we wrestle in dual meets and tournaments all the time. It's not like that. You, you may only wrestle, you know, four or five tournaments a year, you know, and there's not a lot of, there's clearly not, there wasn't dual meets. Like you would wrestle in, you know, maybe, maybe a tournament in November, December, like the NYC, mm-hmm. then you'll wrestle maybe in the Schultz tournament at the end of January, you might wrestle in, in maybe an international tour in February, March, 
And then, then you're going to the U S open in April. Right. And the plan is clear to, to win the nationals, make the world team and wrestle in the world championships. And then start back over again <laughs> with the NYC in November. And yep. so you really don't compete as much. And it, it's, there's a lot more time spent, I think on, on, de- on developing clearly your skill set because a lot of wrestlers, as we know, American wrestlers, they spend four or five years wrestling folk style. So there has to be this transition of like, I'm not wrestling folk style. They don't, you know, they, at the Olympic games, they don't take folk style. All they take is right. Yeah. Freestyle Greco Roman. So there's this transition that you have to clearly um, become much more skilled in your parterre game offensively turning people. And then almost more importantly, not getting turned. Cause if you get somebody who's really, really good on top of you and you don't know what you're doing, I mean, you know, they can tech you. So you have to spend time really maximizing your, your parterre knowledge. And then, uh, then there's a whole like element of studying your opponents. Right. Yeah. And so I started studying opponents like Satyev and Leopold and Adam Barakat from Turkey and, and moon from Korea. I started studying those wrestlers, you know, two years before I wrestled in the Olympic games. So you really become a student of the sport. I said, because you have time to do that. No longer mm-hmm. I was, I was a student in the classroom. So I had that margin time to, uh, to be a student of the sport. And the one thing I wanted to ask you about before we get back to the matches, you were someone who was, as a physical athlete, chiseled, Brandon Slay. You were you were jacked <laughs> compared to, if you look at you and Satya, you're like, come on, man. Like The one guy looks like he's maybe a poet, and then you look like a, <laughs> like a middle linebacker. Yeah. I, and I'm curious, what was, your, what was your lifting routine? Were you doing kettlebells? Or were you doing like, Olympic movements? What did that look like? Mostly Olympic movements. I, I did a lot of power cleans. And so... Um, our coach, Rob Wagner at Penn, was just a, he was a phenomenal strength and conditioning coach, and he was a successful um, power lifter in his own right. Got squatted, I think, like 850 pounds, you know, and he weighed like, one, weighed like 195, right? He's just a he, – he had a lot of knowledge, and I felt like I had a really solid strength program in college. And what happened at the Olympic Training Center, I got out there, and I got on their program for the first, whatever, eight or nine months. And no disrespect to their program over 20 years ago. But as I got on that program, I just realized I wasn't, I didn't have the same gains. I didn't have the same confidence in my strength. So I just asked them, I said, Hey, you know, no disrespect, but I'd really like to get back on the program that I had in college. I called coach Wagner. I said, Hey, would you mind putting together a strength conditioning program for me out here in Colorado Springs? Thankfully he took the time to do that. So I got back on that program and then I just started really getting strong. And that was, that was a lot. I did a lot of power cleans, a lot of explosive movement, which for me doing, doing a double leg, you get on a double leg, you pulling your head up, your back straight, your hips in those power cleans and those hang cleans were, they were a big part of my, um, I think my power. Yeah. I mean, you could see it. And that's, that's why when I look at the match with Joe, you know, a lot of people say Joe has one of the blast, the best reshot blast doubles there is but i mean you have one of the best doubles there is so that was really interesting to see kind of you two going at it and just man what what a what a tournament for you the 2000 us open and so after you win that i gotta think that's a huge turning point for your for your confidence and for your game moving forward you had call it two months six weeks till the olympic trials um what was your I guess that was your mindset, but what were your expectations of who you might wrestle in the finals of the Olympic trials? You know, after the, after the nationals, it was just, the first thing was really special for me as, as a born and raised Texan. Um, I think I was the first person from Texas ever to become a national champ. 
in the U.S. Open yeah. and, and outstanding wrestlers. So I just right there, that moment as, as, as a Texan, that was really special. Right. And I share that with you. That's not I don't share that with you um, to brag at all, but to connect to this next point is that the Olympic trials coming up, as you talked about, happened to be in Dallas, Texas, right? Yeah. So I was taking that that success in Vegas of winning the national tournament, and then I knew that the Olympic trials for the very first time ever, I think, were in the state of Texas. And then I just happened to be the only Texan in the whole entire tournament. So, <laughs> you know, here you are. You know, I, I mean, I knew I was in the finals already, so I was either going to be on the Olympic team, right, or the alternate, but I was thinking, making the Olympic team. But that was just really special to be a Texan in Dallas, Texas. And I think I had about 400 people from Amarillo, you know, my hometown drive down to Dallas and they're in the stands with, you know, they had these like sleigh 624 shirts on, which is kind of a play on Austin, you know, 316. But the 624, that, that was the date, June 24th. And so what they're pretty much saying is like sleigh, I believe you can do it today. And, you know, to have them up in the stands uh, cheering for me and, there's a bunch of kids, you know, took their shirts off and, you know, painted sleigh, you know, S L A Y and stood together and they were cheering. And so that was just a, that was a really special moment as a Texan to be in Texas and, and seeking to make the Olympic team and accomplish my dream. It was just a, it was really special um, weekends, you know, clearly a really special day. Yeah. And, and you, you win it against your coach. Tell us a little bit about, uh, about Brian Dolph. And I don't, again, another guy I don't know a ton about j- just outside of the research I'd done for this, but um yeah, it must have been unique wrestling your coach in the Olympic trial finals. <laughs> that's an understatement, <laughs> Ryan. Um, yeah, talk about Brian Dolph. He was an NCAA champion, I believe, in 1990 for the University of Indiana. And Jim Humphrey, um, mm-hmm. you know, Reese Humphrey's father, yeah. Jim was his coach. Uh, Jim, I think, is, is one of the best technicians I've ever been around. He infused that knowledge into Brian, Brian Dolph. I think Brian Dolph is one of the best technicians I've ever been around. So what an honor to have a guy like that as your assistant coach in college. And then don't forget, he was actually training out Foxcatcher, you know, way before I got there. So he'd spent all this time training with Dave Schultz and training with Valentin Jordanoff and training with John Jira um, and training with all these, you know, international guys that would come out to Foxcatcher. And so to, to be able to work with him, you know, for that period of time was, you know, it's huge for me. And again, it wasn't just folk style. I mean, Brian Dolph had tons of freestyle skills as well. So to, to be able to have him as a coach and a training partner, I would say was, was just instrumental in my success. And I, I really believe this. I would not have been um, an NCAA finalist if it wasn't for him, All-American. I would not have been an Olympic champion if it wasn't for Brian Dolph. Just his technique, his grit, um, the, the fight that he brought to the wrestling room that, that he taught us was really important. And the truth is the majority of my time at Penn, when he was coaching me, he beat the dog out of me. <laughs> you know, when he came in, I was, it was my second year as a sophomore. When he came in as our assistant coach, you know, my, my second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year, I mean, majority of the time, you know, he just, he just whooped me. So when, when you, when you go like, Oh my gosh, I'm graduating from college. And now the very first time I wrestled him was the Dave Schultz tournament the very first inaugural Dave Schultz international tournament, the very first real match out against Dolph. I'm just thinking, man, most of the time I've wrestled this guy before I walked out there on the mat. I'm like, he's like, he's, he's beat me. But, you know, thankfully I started picking up that game for being able to attack from space. Like we'd spoken about earlier and I was able to beat him that match. And so I was one, one, one and zero against him. And then in 1999, the very first match of the world team trials um, in 1999, 
Brian Dolph and I draw each other first match. And he ends up beating me one zero is a nine minute. It was not a barn burner. It was a really a, a snap hook fest. You know, we sit there and both tried to snap hook each other for nine minutes. Um, and he beat me one zero. Cause back then you had to have three points mm-hmm. in regulation. And if you didn't, somebody didn't have three points, you went to overtime. So it was one zero. We wrestled three more minutes and he ended up beating me one zero. So I was one and one against him. Right. So then in 2000, when he ends up upsetting Joe Williams, what happened in that most, match? He ended up getting Joe uh, put down. He was really uh, he he dug some hooks on him. He challenged him with a uh, with like an inside trip, and so he got Joe um, kind of called for being passive. Mm-hmm. So back then, if somebody was being passive, they would say, hey, "Do you want to keep him on his feet, or do you want to put him down?" And so Dolph chose to put Joe down. And he ended up gut wrenching him three times. He got ahead six zero, and so that that was a. Uh, Wow. He, 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 and back then actually he gut wrenched him. He held him for one, two, three, four, five. You had to score some form of another point back then. Nowadays you can do as many gut wrenches and leg laces as you want. <laughs> but back then, if you gut wrenched a guy, you had to have some form of another point, which could be a leg lace or a hold one, two, three, four, five. You get the extra hold point. So, so Dolph gut wrenched him, held him, gut wrenched him, held him, gut wrenched him, held him. And he ended up, you know, getting a, a real solid lead on Joe and Joe wasn't able to come back and, and beat him. So then, I was thinking I'd spent 90% of my time planning on wrestling Joe Williams in the Olympic trials. That's what I envisioned. That's what I thought about. I believe that's what's going to happen. And now I'm like, I'm going to have to wrestle. I'm one and one against Dolph. Majority of the time we wrestle in college, right? He, uh, you know, he, he whooped me. So that was, that was the guy I was gonna have to wrestle to make the Olympic team, which is really surreal because, I really cared about him. Again, he was my coach. He was my friend. He was a mentor. And so for that to be my opponent in a best two out of three series that would decide whether I accomplished my lifelong athletic dream of making the Olympic team was, um, it was emotional. I think that's the best way to put it. It was just a really emotional time. And it's, it's good to hear you say that because as I watched it yesterday on YouTube, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, Dolph beat Joe, but, you know, Dolph was Brandon's coach. You know, Brandon probably had it in the bag. But going into it, it wasn't anything <laughs> where it was guaranteed at all. No, because there was just a lot of um, – as it is in our country now, there, there was a lot of depth back then. There's a lot of depth now. But you think back in that weight class, I think there were like eight NCAA champions and finalists that were all vying for the number yeah. one spot. I mean, Brian Dolph is the NCAA champ. Joe Williams was a three-time NCAA champ. Steve Marinetti was the NCAA champ. Daryl Weber was the NCAA champ. Um, Sean Bormet was second in the NCAAs, right, to Pat Smith. Mm-hmm. When Pat Smith won his fourth. You know, I was second in the NCAAs. So, I mean, that, that, mat, that weight class was just, you know, stacked wow. with proven performers. And so whoever came out of that was went through the gauntlet. And for Dolph, I'm, I'm pretty sure, if I think back, I think he beat Steve Marinetti. And then that put him into the match against Joe Williams. So he beat Marinetti. He beat Joe Williams. So you got to realize, like, he's he's peaking at the right time. Like, yeah, these weren't fluke wins. I mean, he wrestled really well. And um, he was 33 years old. I was 24 years old. He had a lot of experience. But the flip side, I also saw it, and it's no disrespect to Brian, I also saw it as that I'm 24. So I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm stronger than I've ever been. I did not go through the mini tournament. I didn't have to wrestle those three, you know, rigorous matches. 
and mm-hmm. he did. He finally makes the finals. He's got a black eye. Like he's 33. <laughs> I, I guarantee he was sore. He was feeling it. And I saw that as confidence for me, um, realizing that I was fresh, um, and explosive and ready to go. Yeah. I mean, and it, it showed you looked, you look good out there in those matches. I think you won the first one, what five, two, six, two. Mm-hmm. And then the second five, one two. really five, two really controlled it as well. And I just want to go back to some of the names you're mentioning. I, I forgot that <laughs> you know, Marinetti was on the world team in 98. Bormet had beaten Adam Satiev. Who did Bormet lose to in the trials? Do you know? Um, I, I can't remember now, but I, I just also remember um, Dan St. John was also in that weight class, and he was the world team member in 1997. Um, Marinetti was the world team member in 1998. Joe Williams was the world team member in 1999, right? And, yeah. and Dan St. John was the NCAA champion as well. So there's another one. Right. Yeah. So that that weight class, Tony Roby was in there. He was mm-hmm. second in sub lays to Joe Williams in 1997. Um, Jason Kraft um, was in that weight class. It, it was just a man. It, it was a when you hit the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, when you hit the quarterfinals, like you're, you're going to wrestle an sub lay champ yeah. in the quarters. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was it was a tough weight class back then. And I think I think all in all that. um Another interesting point is that, that that particular weight class in our country has, I think, been one of the most successful weight classes that, that our country has. I mean, if you look at Dave Schultz winning the gold in 84, Kenny Mundy winning the gold in 88, Kenny Mundy won the silver in 92, um, and in 1996, Kenny made the team again, lost to Satiev, no medal there. But 2000, um, you know, for me to win the gold – and then clearly there's this, the guy came along in 2011 named Jordan Burroughs that's done Jeez. really well at that weight class. So if you think about how many medals have been won just from 84 to, you know, to 2020, like that 36 years, we've won a lot of medals at that 74 to 76 kilos. And if you say like, why is that? And, you know, my theory is that that's kind of the average weight class for, for a man, you know, that's, that's in great shape. I mean, most guys are the average of the height is five, eight, you know, about, about one seventy-five. Yeah. So I think that we, we, we just have a lot of guys that kind of fit that size. And I think our country's done a great job developing that weight class. Yeah. And it is super competitive when you look at it that way. I mean, even for, even for Kenny Monday to make the team at 96 against a very game, Pat Smith. I mean, a lot of people probably thought Pat, um, well, I mean, Kenny kind of came out of retirement late. So Pat was right. looking like the guy and, um, you know, a lot of people thought maybe he would go on for a couple more years, but you know, it just, it just turned out that it was just this loaded kind of melting pool of studs from all kinds of different schools, not just the power schools. So you, uh, you make it, uh, before we go on to the Olympics, what's your fondest memory of that Olympic trials in 2000? My, my fondest memory was right after I made the team, there was just this pure joy, just exuberation, you know, that came after me. I was never somebody that ever planned, Hey, after you win, you're going to act like this. You're going to do this fist pump or whatever. Like I never did that. Um, I, I visualized myself getting my hand raised, but, but I wouldn't visualize what the, what type of feelings or, or like a celebration I would do. I never did that. So when I made the team, I just know in my heart of hearts, that was just pure um, elation. That was just pure joy I had. And I remember just like thrusting both of my fists in the air and just like, um, just all, all, I think just this almost catharsis, this cleansing of the emotions of starting wrestling when you're six years old. And then, you know, you make the Olympic team 18 years later and how many times I've thought about that 
And again, we're not, we're not to the Olympics yet, but you don't get to go to the Olympics unless you make the team. So that was a huge step. And then I think to, to listen to the crowd back then. And again, I didn't, I don't, I didn't, I never wrestled for applause. That wasn't my motive, but when you start people stood up and started, you know, cheering. And I looked up, you know, in my section with all of my family and, you know, friends were, you know, they're screaming. Um, and one of my fondest memories as well is that I actually was more nervous about having to speak in front of the whole entire arena than I was my second match to make the team. People kind of asked me about, Hey, did you get nervous in that second match? I said, actually, I kept going out to check like when, you know, Kerry Colop made the team or Lincoln McRae made the team. I'd say, you know, th- did they interview them? I'm like, nope, no interview. I'm like, woo, you know, what? they're not going to have to like talk to me in front of like, you know, whatever, 12,000 people, I think. And so like, I, I didn't think I was going to be interviewed. And once I made the team, they gave me this little American flag and I was going to take my little American flag and, you know, run out of the arena. And all of a sudden I hear Jeff Blacknick walking up the stairs like boom, 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 boom. And he's like, Hey, Brandon. I was like, I was like, no, he's like, can you come over here? And I was like, oh, and my, I was like, oh my gosh. I actually, my heart started beating faster, I think, at that moment than it was when I was wrestling. And um, I'm just thinking, what the heck is this guy going to ask me? You know, and he ended up asking me, you know, kind of where, uh, where, where I draw my strength from. And, and I'd actually never been public with my faith. So that was really special for me just to say that, that you know, I'm a Christian. I draw my faith from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And and it was really special for me because it gave me the opportunity to thank everybody. Hey, thank you um, for coming to support me. Thank you for everything you've done. And I think that that opportunity of gratitude um, to, to my support system, you know, that just just meant a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a culmination. And and one of the people I'm sure you had had some gratitude for was your were your parents. And I thought it was interesting that your dad played football for Bear Bryant. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of, uh, what kind of a guy was he? Was he a hard ass? Was he a, just a softy? I mean, what was he? He's a big softy. My dad, you know, growing, growing up, we had Alabama stuff all over the house. You know, there was, um, uh, ceramic elephants, you know, cause that was kind of their unspoken uh, mascot was the elephant, but you know, they were the crimson tide. I have tons of shirts with me with like, you know, Alabama tank tops and stuff on when I was a kid. And of course, I didn't know who Bear Bryant was when I was eight, nine, 10, or 11. As I got older, though, I started learning more, just what a you know, legendary coach he was. And then I started learning how special that was, that my dad had the opportunity to play in the Sugar Bowl for him, that you know, my dad was um, – my dad never told me this. My dad wrestled at Trinidad Junior College. Um, I knew he wrestled there, but he never told me that he was, in the, that he was a junior college All-American. He never told me that. I had wow. to find that out like way later, right? So – as I got older, I realized how special that was for my father, um, kind of to, to have that success. And, you know, my dad, he began, I think, being a hard ass when I was six, um, six or seven. He was coming in the room trying to coach me at the YMCA, you know, the local YMCA boys club in Amarillo. He was wanting to get in there and get involved. And I didn't like him correcting me every single time. I just wanted to go there and have fun and play king of the mat. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, like, stop correcting me and stop telling me I'm doing all these <laughs> things wrong. And I remember one particular day, I just lost it on him. And I just said, I just pointed at the door. I was like, get out of here. And my dad was like, okay. And at that moment, he turned around, walked out, went and started drinking coffee with the dads. And my dad never coached me again. Wow. He allowed, from that point on, he allowed my coaches to be my coach. And he was my dad, meaning 
when I won, you know, he gave me a big hug. When I lost, he gave me a big hug. When I won, he praised me. When I lost, um, you know, he put his arm around me and told me it was going to be okay. So I think I, I look at not judging fathers that they get so dang involved in their kids' sporting careers, but I'm just, I'm so thankful that I had a dad that was my dad. Mm-hmm. And he allowed everybody else to be my coach because I think I think I started all in love with the sport because of that. And I didn't feel pressure, you know, and anxiety for my dad, like over the top of me all the time. He was just, you know, he was just there loving me regardless of what happens. And that freed me up, Ryan. That freed me up to just compete because he made it really clear that, that do not wrestle for me. He said, don't wrestle for me. Don't wrestle for your grandmother. Don't wrestle for your friends. Like if you're going to do this, you do this because you want to wrestle. Like you enjoy this. I'll, I'll take you to every dang term you want to go to, but you better do it because you want to do it. Don't do it for me. And once I realized like, cool, right? There's no pressure from you. I'm not doing it for you. I mean, next thing I know, like I'm, you know, I'm wrestling my fifth year, sixth year, seventh year, eighth year, ninth year. And then, you know, the, the rest is history. What a relief that is just to hear you even say that to freedom. You must've felt competing with that kind of mentality. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think about the NCAA tournaments, my dad, you know, he would, he would drive my grandmother to the NCAA tournaments, but he was just up there supporting me. He never said one thing about not one ounce of technique when I was at the NCAA tournaments, you know, the, in the nationals, Olympic trials, Olympics, my dad didn't say one thing about technique. He just, again, kept telling me that, that he believed in me, that he loved me. And that, you know, that, that, and he just kept telling me how proud he was of me all the time. And again, I would just say that just depositing all that in my heart, um, it just allowed me to compete with a lot more freedom. Man, that's powerful. And it's, it's, you know, we're not going to get a chance to hit on your NCA career here today, but man, you talk about another just example of perseverance, the ups and downs. And that, that in itself is a whole crap it's even a documentary you know it could be so maybe we can hit on that in in, in subsequent conversations but let's get to the let's get to the meat of this thing <laughs> sydney olympics yeah. i can still see the opera house you know in my mind from one of the you know commercials showing the the sydney landscape um, or the cityscape so you get there what do you remember from the village what i remember from the village was that it was loud and that there were a lot of athletes that wrestling was the last three days of the Olympics, which means we had to stay focused for that whole entire time leading up to it. And what I remember is that there were athletes getting done on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day. And of course, you know, they're, they're done with their Olympic competition. So, you know, they're loud. Um, it's kind of chaotic there. And I would say I, as somebody that wanted to stay ultra focused, I didn't like it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I clearly didn't go to the Olympics to party. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to the Olympics to be an Olympic champion and I needed the, I need the environment around me um, to fit that goal that I had. And so I ended up contacting the leadership of USA Wrestling and uh, Rich Bender and, and Jim Shear. And I ended up saying, like, this is not working. Um, I, I don't feel comfortable staying here. It's just too kind of loud and chaotic. Uh, th- this is a business trip for me. And I remember sharing that with them. And they end up, I'm so thankful to them, they end up finding a couple um, suites about two blocks away from Darling Harbor where we competed and they ended up getting those rooms for us. And so Carrie McCoy stayed there, Lincoln McQuarrie stayed there, you know, and I stayed there. And I would tell you that that changed everything for me because it was, it was quiet. Uh, I I woke up, I got to sleep later because all I had to do was like, you know, walk two blocks to the arena where at the village, we actually had to get on a boat, right. Get on a ferry and take the ferry 
to um, Darling Harbor and get off. And, and the time sometimes would change. Sometimes it would come five minutes late, seven minutes late. It was just, it was kind of like a crapshoot. You didn't know for sure when you were going to get there all the time, which I didn't like that either. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to know if it's leaving at 8.30, it's leaving at 8.30. So being able to stay in the suite um, a couple blocks away from the arena, Ryan, was, was huge for me. And again, it, it eliminated those distractions and got me, got me really focused on the task at hand. So how long would you say you were there in the village before you got out of that situation? I'm thinking I was there maybe uh, a week. And it was just that crazy. People are partying, having fun. Yeah, and- yeah it's just loud. You know, you could hear them at nighttime, you know, coming in. Uh, and because and, and, there was like, you know, it was building after building after building. And so all these other teams, I'm not going to like name names of people, but yeah. you know, all these other teams would come in. It was just kind of loud and chaotic. And, and again, we as wrestlers were, we weren't doing any of that because we hadn't competed yet and we weren't going to compete until that, you know, September 28th, 29th and 30th, which was, again, that was the last three days of the Olympics. So like we needed, we needed to focus again. I just want to praise USA wrestling and, you know, Rich Benner, Jim Shear for, for listening to us, not just me, you know, listening to us on that and, and realizing this is, this is a lifetime dream for these guys. And we want to make sure that every I is dotted and every so that was that was huge yeah and you talk about the other guys you're with i gotta imagine i know lincoln McAravey. he's all business he's a quiet guy you know (laughs) carrie mccoy uh um colat he's freaking nails just laser focused and you guys are cutting weight this whole time so it's like not really (laughs) that enjoyable to wait to the end for the olympics um during the build-up did you see satia walking around at all no I, i never saw him until the weigh ins and, um, I remember when we made weight though. He, he looked at me and I think he thought probably he was gonna have to wrestle Joe Williams. Again, I think that's what happens. Some of these foreign guys, they look and go like, well, who, who was the American last year? And they just sometimes think that's going to be the person. And, and I don't really, I don't really think he knew who I was or if he had studied me. Cause I think he was just like, well, I'm going to win this thing. Nobody's going to beat me. I'm sure he was confident in that, but, but I, when I got on the scale, um, and stood next to him, I think he realized, oh my gosh, this is, this is a different guy. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I think, I think he may start having some second thoughts. It's, it goes back to like the six and under tournaments where you size someone up on the scale, you know, you're yeah. like, God, that guy looks so big, but I can remember my mom or dad telling me they're the same size as you. And I'm thinking, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean that match with Joe and Satya from 99, I'm sure you watch it a bunch. Is that where you saw your window for that double A? Because Joe hit him with a double early in that match off the mat. Yeah, not just that match, but if you watched about 20 matches for of Satya, which I did more than that, mm-hmm. the areas that you saw him get scored um, on were people blowing through him on a double A because, you know, he's tall and lanky and sometimes he would stand tall. So people would blast through him sometimes. I mean, I think there was one guy from, I think maybe Senegal wrestling one time and, and just double-legged him right off the bat. <laughs> and then he came back before there was a tech rule, beat the guy by like 30 points or something. But you start <laughs> seeing you start seeing these opportunities where people score on him by like level changing and just blasting through him. And so you're like, you take note, right? <laughs> yeah. Take note of that. And then you would see him get gut-wrenched sometimes. And again, if you look at him, I mean, he doesn't – he's not a big muscular guy. Like, I used to think if I can get my arms locked around him, I'm going to snap his rib cage. Like, I'm going to, like, take every ounce of oxygen out of him I can. And so seeing him get gut-wrenched, seeing him get double-egged, again, you're taking notes. And then it just – it was worked out great for me because my number one move on my feet was a double-egg. 
my number one move in part chair was a gut wrench. Right. So I, I think, I think I just, I particularly matched up really well mm-hmm. against the Tia based on my strengths um, compared to what his kryptonite was. Yeah. You think about your parterre at the time was just, um, I mean, I've never seen someone hit gut so consistently, whether it was against Joe or Satiev. And I know you were a big Greco guy and I'm sure there's some, there's a, uh, some roots with the Greco uh, gut wrench there. For so sure. when the tournament started, did you wrestle all the matches in one day? Like what was the format? No, you made weight on Wednesday. We wrestled two matches on Thursday, two matches on Friday, and then the finals were on Saturday. So it, it was kind of like an NCAA tournament. Mm-hmm. Like an NCAA tournament, you make weight on Wednesday, two on right, two on Thursday, two on Friday, and finals on Saturday. So very similar. And again, you only make weight one time, which I mean, again, wow. I love that. So for me, you know, I would walk around weighing, you know, 182, 183, sometimes, you know, up to 185. And so I was cutting down to 167.5, 76 kilos. So for me to make that weight, that was a big cut for me. And um, thankfully, I did not have to make it mm-hmm. every single day. Because by the time I, I got to the finals, I remember I weighed myself. Um, I weighed 184 pounds, you know, in the finals. Wow. So thankfully, you didn't have to make weight every day because that would have been a whole different. It, it makes it a different sport. It makes it when, you know, there's two arguments. Some people are like, well, if you make weight every single day, then people aren't going to cut as much weight. People are always going to cut a certain amount of weight, right? Mm-hmm. If, you wake in, if you make weight every single day, they say people won't cut as much weight. But the downside is, though, it, it makes people think about, I got to make weight. I can't, I, I can't have this. I can't have two bottles of water. I can only have one bottle of water. I can't have this whole entire sandwich. I can only have half of the sandwich, right? It just you end up having to think about making weight and it's great to like, just be done with it. I made weight done and that can just focus on wrestling. So, and I'm a big fan of that, but clearly people that don't cut a lot of weight that don't like to wrestle guys bigger than them, you know, they'd love to make weight every day. So, uh, but for me, uh, that, that worked well for me. Could you imagine now making weight two days in a row scratch weight? No. Well, I, I would not have, I wouldn't have been able to wrestle probably 76 kilos. No way. Because yeah. you know, it was just, it was clearly legal back then, but you could use saunas, right? Mm-hmm. You could use sauna suits. So, I mean, clearly I wasn't cheating, but that was part of international wrestling. And if I couldn't have used a sauna suit or a sauna, it would have been, and had to make weight scratch every day. Like, I just don't think I could have gone 76 kilos. I no. think I would have had to make the decision to like, you know, bulk up and try to make the team, you know, at the upper weight class, which, you know, that had less gutches and Charles Burton. And you know, there was some, there's some tough hombres there. <laughs> For sure. So when you get to the match with Satiev, you know, what did he, I wanted to ask you, one of the questions I had written down was, what did his defense feel like? He looked very funky. Yeah. Again, studying video, again, and back to the whole coachable part, is that we, Coach Jackson made it really clear that I did not need to shoot single legs on him. Because when you shoot single legs on Satiev, he scores 99% of the time. Hmm. So shooting a single leg on him or even a high crotch where he'd sit corner and cross lift you is like really was a no-no. And so the game plan was don't attack unless it's a level change, blast him off his feet, double leg. And I listened to that in the first 30 or 40 seconds. And then um, I veered from that strategy um, for the next, whatever, you know, four minutes. And then that's when you see him, you know, he got some takedowns to score to me because I didn't stick to that strategy. And then when we went to overtime, thankfully, I was like, okay, I need to you know, learn my lesson. No single legs. I'm only going to shoot an overtime sun victory if it's a double leg. And, you know, thankfully, he was kind of digging hook and he rose up. I just sensed him. 
I just sensed him kind of just come up out of his stance a little bit. And right when I sensed him come up, that's when I level changed an outside step double egg in which um, I'm really glad he rose up. <laughs> that was all she wrote, man. It, it was yeah. clear as day. You can see him when he hits the mat, he kind of, he kind of lands on a split and he's trying to maybe scoot around and, and it's like, it's over though, man. It's, there's, there's nothing you can say about it. <laughs> I will say if I had to, if I had to pick one thing that, you know, won the match, it's gotta be that turn right away. Like when you turned him right away like that, I guarantee he wasn't expecting that. Um, and that actually resulted in a little bit of a scramble where he reversed you yep. just again, showing how funky he was. I actually thought you touched followed him on that gut. <laughs> Has anyone ever said that to you? Lots of people have said that. And there's actually a photo that somebody took where his, his back is flat as a board on yeah. the mat. It's a great, um, it's a great photo somebody took, but, but I'm really glad they didn't call the pen. Yeah. Because I think if they would have called the pin, if I double leg and gut wrenched him and they're like touch fall, then they would have been like, that's a fluke. Yeah. I think people True. would have been like, Oh, Brandon Slay, he beats the team. That what, what a fluke, right? They called the touch fall. So even though I, I do believe he was pinned, I think I did pin him. I'm glad they didn't call the pin. I'm glad we got to wrestle it out because then, you know, to go into overtime and take him down in overtime, then, then beating Satiev, it wasn't a fluke. And we wrestled yeah. the whole entire match. There were no funky calls. No, you know, there was nothing subjective. We're like, Oh, that was a bad call. Like it was, it was objective match, objective takedowns. And, you know, kind of go back to your point. It's what I'm coaching my wrestlers now at the PRTC, just how important a turn is. You don't just take a guy down and, and just lay on him and look at the ref and like bring you back on your feet that your turns, that's, that's a, a match separator. I mean, that separates you from your opponent, especially if you can get multiple turns, right? If you can catch a trap arm and you catch a leg lace and get multiple turns, I mean, that's how you tech guys and get off the mat quickly. But that turn, I think you're right. You know, Ryan, that that was a difference maker because I, Back then, too, you got to remember the reason why it was really a difference maker is because we've talked about this already. You had to have the magical three points, mm -hmm. right? And yep. so by getting three points right off the bat, it's like, well, man, this match, if he has a lead, it's going to end in regulation. You know, they're not going to go into overtime, right, unless it's tied mm -hmm. and end up becoming tied and we went to sudden victory. But, but that turn was really important. And then, my goodness, like him catching my wrist. And when I popped him through, he caught my wrist. I couldn't get my arm out. So I had to just bail and give up the reversal. And then that was his first point on the board. So when we got back up on our feet, it's 3-1. And and uh, then we just – I had to keep wrestling. Yeah. You almost held him for a five count too um, on the back there. It was – it's just an awesome match. And like you said, you know, that year also is when Rulon beat Karelin. But the end of the match is not – really that satisfying for wrestling fans to understand what's unless you really know what's going on so it was <laughs> yeah. good to see yeah. your match end in just such a satisfying way where there was no funkiness and we know that, that was the year where i don't really know what happened to cole App, but there was some real shenanigans going on yeah. and so for nothing to happen in your match one it was super rare but two awesome that it happened um actually well, so you did, say you said there's nothing to happen, but I think what, here's a little backstory, which I know this is kind of why you do this podcast. People don't know these things, but nothing happened in the match. But back then, all you had to do was pay $500 to um, end up um, challenging the match, challenging the referee's decision. Yeah. And so what ended up happening is that after my match against Satiev, I go back, um, I go back in the back. Like, I think I've just beat Satiev, right? I'm really excited about it. And Kevin Jackson came to me and said, Hey, Brandon, um, they protested, you know, they paid the money. They protested your match. They're going to go back there and they're going to rewatch the match. And just so you know, he looked at me, he's like, we know how international wrestling works. I need you to start getting yourself mentally ready to wrestle him again in about 45 minutes. 
Stop it. What? Truth. Is that what happened and to Colat? It's exactly what happened to Colat. So Colat beat the Iranian, right? They protested the match. Again, 500 bucks. I mean, there was protests yeah. taking place left and right. Because, again, you, you pay the money and the, who knows what's getting paid in the back. And so, you know, they protested Colat's match. They go back. They rescore it, right? And then Colat had to wrestle that Iranian again about whatever, 45 minutes, an hour later. And, of course, the Iranian, he'd already lost. So he had nothing to lose this match. And he throws the kitchen sink, you know, at Kerry and ends up being Kerry and, you know, ends up losing. And, um, you know, Kerry doesn't medal in the Olympic Games, which I totally believe he was peaking and he was, he was at the potential to be the Olympic champion. Yeah. And so he went from the opportunity to be Olympic champion to getting a match protest and have to wrestle the same guy twice in the same day and losing that match, which, you know, I just, I, I hate that for Kerry, but also know that, when, when Kevin Jackson told me that you need to mentally prepare yourself to wrestle Sativa again, like it wasn't like a joke, like this, yeah. it's probably going to happen. You know, you just beat wow. Buvasa Sativa and the Russians paid 500 bucks to protest and they're going to go back and watch this. So Brandon, you need to get ready to wrestle him again. I love how they put the 500 on. Like that's going to do anything at that level. Like what's 500 bucks to anybody? Well, anybody's willing to protest matches yeah. for that. Right. I mean, if you had to pay like, Ten thousand dollars to protest a match, well, then there would not be. And they, I think they've learned that now. Yeah. Um, but back then it was easy, right, for for people to protest. So anyway, you know, they, I'm getting myself mentally prepared, Ryan. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. So I, I double egged him early. I gut wrenched him. I, I believe I can double egg him, double egg him twice. But on my gut wrench, I got to really make sure I drive all the way through. I don't want him to reverse me again, right? I'm starting to think about all this stuff. Don't do not shoot that dang single leg again. That's how he scored on you. Just get rid of the single legs, Brandon. Stay focused on your double leg. So again, I'm starting to think through all this stuff. And I'm I'm visualizing wrestling him again, seeing myself getting my hand raised again. I'm preparing myself. And and Kevin Jackson thankfully comes in and goes, he's like, he's like, hey, you won the protest. You know, you beat him. And I was just like, you know, it's like not that I was scared, yeah. but I was just excited that I didn't have to go wrestle him again. And, you know, just to, to connect this is that, you know, I beat the guy from Kazakhstan the next day, and then I had the guy from Turkey in the semifinals. And then I beat the guy from I Turkey. Th I thought that was the semis. That wasn't the no, semis? No, no. no, no. First day I wrestled Bulgaria, match one, Satya of match two. That was the pool. I was in a pool of three guys. So you had to win your pool to advance. So Satya beats the Bulgarian. I beat the Bulgarian. And then whoever wins that match against Satya and I, wins the pool and they advance. If I would have lost that match against Satyev, I'd have been out of the tournament. Mm. No medal. That's why me beating him, he didn't win the pool. So he was out of the tournament. That's why he didn't win a medal. He didn't have a chance to win a medal because he did not win the pool. So back then there was like pools of four, pools of three, mm -hmm. and you had to win the pool to advance. So I win the pool. Um, and that two matches that day, Bulgarian, Satyev, the next morning, I have Kazakhstan in the quarterfinals, beat him which is a whole nother match. Um, I shot like 16 times. We went the full nine minutes. I end up, it's two to two. I end up winning referee's decision because I shot so many times, I think. Wow. So I beat him and then I go into the semifinals and then I have the Turk and the Turk, I end up beating him three to one. But I, I, I share the story just to say, I made the Olympic finals. There wasn't, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get all excited about it. It was more of just like, you know, I'm in the Olympic finals. I go back to the warm up area, Ryan. Kevin Jackson comes to me. He's like, hey, Brandon's going to let you know. Turkey protested the match. They're going to go back and rewatch re that match. I need you to get yourself mentally ready to wrestle the Turk again. You're not in the Olympic finals yet, Brandon. 
So I'm like, okay, okay. He tried to crotch lift me. I defended, you know, I reversed him. I turned him on top. Again, I'm doing the same thing in this tee of match. What worked? What do I need to change? How can I be best prepared to beat him again to make the Olympic finals? Because this could potentially happen again. We know this. And thankfully, Kevin Jackson said, hey, you know, you won the, you know, you won the protest. You're in the Olympic finals, baby. You know, and he comes in and we get excited because it's like it's a done deal. I'm in the Olympic finals. And then clearly I had uh, Alexander Lee pulled the next day. Yeah. And you I actually haven't watched that match because I wanted to ask you this question. But in the finals, you lose that match. You get a silver. You get back to Texas. You know, what are you thinking? You get back to Texas. No <laughs> one's around. You're finally back wherever you're living. Colorado, Texas. Yeah. And I watched this documentary this year called, I think it's called The Weight of Gold, or it's about the post-Olympic blues that athletes feel when they get home. What was your experience? Like two weeks after the Olympics, everything's died down. You're back to normal. Even before you've known your, even before you won the gold, like even as a silver medalist, did you feel any of those post-Olympic blues or what was that transition like? Well, I think if you haven't watched that match, I would just encourage you to watch it. Um, It was a tough match to go through because they gave him all of his points. Right. They, they cautioned me. They gave him two points after the clinch, zero, zero. Oh. They say that I didn't let him lock his hands, though we're locked for five seconds. We're both locked. They and they gave two on that? They gave him – I gave me a caution, gave him two points. And because I was cautioned, I have to go down now. Oh. So he's on top trying to turn me, and I pull his hand away, and I squeeze it. Now, my grip's pretty strong, but not like break your hand strong. And I pull his hand away, and he's like, ah, ah. He starts screaming. The ref slaps my hand gives me another caution, gives him another point, Ryan. So he's up 3-0. Again, magical three points, right? He had his three points. And now Leopold, who's one of the best defensive wrestlers of all times, has his three points. He doesn't have to do anything the rest of the match. And again, I got second caution, so where do I have to go? Back down. So I was down for probably 40 seconds of him trying to turn me. We we have a little over a minute left in the match. I'm down 3-0. He has yet to take me down. He has yet to turn me. All three of his points were given to him off cautions. I've never been called for those cautions my whole entire wrestling career. So this isn't me making excuses at all. Um, There's lots to share on that. But I would just say that's how the Olympic finals, the biggest match of my life, was was unraveling. Um, And then there's about, I don't know, 30 seconds. I'm down 3-0. I mean, I'm not just going to give up. So I kind of force a shot. I throw a Hail Mary. He blocks me. That's the one point he scored on me, which I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have taken that shot if I wasn't behind 3-0. Right. And so he wins 4-0. He does his little flip. You know, he gets his gold medal. Um, How are you feeling afterwards? I'm the, the silver medalist. There? At first, to be honest with you, oh, there's a lot of anger. I was thinking about, you know, they protested my Satya match. They're protesting my semifinals match. You know, and, and oh, by the way, you know what the only match you can't protest at the Olympics is? Finals? The finals. Can't protest the finals because they don't. They'd say they don't have time to go back rewatch the match because the the medal ceremony takes place quickly. Yeah. So you can't protest the finals. So we didn't have the opportunity to pay our five hundred bucks to protest that match. So there's a lot of anger. I would say immediately, mm-hmm. anger at the refs, just very just surreal twilight zone. Is this really happening? You got to remember after like beating Joe Williams, right? Being the national champ, making the Olympic team, beating Satiev, right? I mean, there's just a lot of great stuff and then for my olympic finals match to just kind of like unravel and be kind of so ugly um that was tough at first i'm, I'm gonna be really candid there was anger there was frustration even on once you got back stand, to the states you're feeling that yeah i mean but on the word stand you'd see like i was frustrated but um after i got drug tested um i didn't think anybody would be outside 
I mean, I thought I was going to walk back to the apartment because it was like two hours later. And I walk outside of Darling Harbor Arena, Ryan, and there was about 40 people, all my family, all my friends that came to watch me. They were all, you know, standing outside, you know, just telling me how much they love me, how proud they are of me. And that's when I realized I, I had a lot of anger inside of me, but I walked out and I was like, you know what? This is what's really important in life. Mm-hmm. This support system, this, this, the friends and the family and the love I have, this is what life is really all about. And at that moment, my heart just really softened. And I realized I need to be thankful. I got second in the Olympics. Yeah. Right. I wanted the gold, but didn't happen. Nothing I can do about it now. Can't protest the finals. I have an Olympic silver medal around my neck. And I had to realize there's more to life than just wrestling. You know, there's more to life than gold medals. And my heart changed even that night. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of gratitude that came. And I took that back to Amarillo, Texas. I started speaking to schools with my silver medal, started telling people there's more to life than gold medals, right? That it's about, you know, your character and how you treat other people and, and giving full effort. I just started sharing all that, you know, from my heart. And, and then we end up, you know, hearing that one of the Olympic champions in freestyle wrestling had tested positive, but we didn't know which one. How long after has all this happened? That was about th- three weeks later. Wow. So, I mean, I was a silver medalist for three weeks. You know, I didn't think, yeah, I thought I was always going to be, you know, the silver medalist. So we hear that somebody, and I was like, well, it's not Leopold. I mean, look at him. He didn't take steroids and he's a wily veteran. Like, I don't think he would have done that. But then I got a call. Um, I think it was two days after we kind of heard somebody tested positive. They called me and said, hey, Brandon, this is so and so from the International Olympic Committee. We wanted to let you know that Alexander Leopold tested positive for Nangelone. He was 20 times over the limit. We have wiped his name clean from the Olympics. We've taken his medal away, and you're the new 2000 Olympic champion. And I think he thought I was going to be, like, really excited. Um, and oddly enough, I was like, what? And I was like, I just said, I was. my first thought was that I, I wanted to wrestle him for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that just kind of like, now you can have the gold. I was more of like, is there any way that we can compete? I was asking this guy, like, is there any way we could wrestle again for it? Maybe do some type <laughs> of like pay-per-view or something, you know, like to get people to watch because like I wanted to wrestle him again, especially based on what happened in the Olympic finals, mm-hmm. right? I wanted to wrestle him again. And finally, like, I'm, I'm bartering back and forth with this guy. And he finally goes like, you know, Mr. Slay, would you like the gold medal, you know, or not? Like, I think he's getting frustrated with me. And I was like, I was like, I was like, yeah, I was like, I'll take it. And, um, you know, they planned a new gold medal ceremony on the Today Show where they brought the guy from Turkey over who went from fourth to third. By the way, he was the most excited that morning because he went from having no medal, right? Yeah. Fourth place to getting third place. So brought the Turk over to get the third. The Korean gets you know, the silver and I get the gold. And, you know, Al Roker from the day shows holding our medals. And, uh, you know, Matt Lauer and Katie Couric, you know, they were, uh, they were the host at that period of time. So I had a chance to do an interview with them and, you know, get the gold medal and, in uh, Rockefeller Square in Manhattan, and all my, you know, my family, my grandma had never been to Manhattan. She'd never <laughs> stayed at the Waldorf Astoria. She'd never been in a limousine. So I got to take Meemaw Slay all around Manhattan in the limo. Um, so it was just a, you know, it was just a wonderful, you know, it was a wonderful day. Wow. What a, what a crazy journey. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even yeah. if you start in, in spring of 2000, but really, if you go back to, you know, like 94, when you, your first time at the nationals at the NCAs and then that kind of roller coaster just to get to that there's so many ups and downs and you know, the perseverance is just uh, another level so coach I know we're way over time I didn't even get to any <laughs> of the pen stuff I wanted to talk about 
Joey McKenna and all these guys. Yeah. And I, I just, let's, let's wind down with that. This will be the last question. What yeah. is the impact of Joey McKenna to your, to your training room there at the Penn RTC? Joey is, is just a phenomenal leader. Uh, as a 25 year old, he just really impresses me. He's, he's 25, but has the, just the wisdom and savvy really of like a, you know, 45 year old, but he's just been a great leader for the, for the pin wrestlers, the Drexel wrestlers. He's been a great leader for the other senior level guys like Ethan Lezak and specifically Dave McFadden because they're mm -hmm. buddies, you know, from, from growing up together, he's had a huge impact on Dave McFadden. Now Mark Hall is here. He's, he's just been a great leader for Mark and, and any of the, the guys that we bring in to the PRTC, like everybody, um, loves Joey is impressed with Joey. And I think just his, his technical ability, um, his, um, di discipline, how he lives out what he says and his ultimately his faith and his character. It's just, he's just a phenomenal role model. And so I'm just really thankful we have him as part of our team. You know, it's interesting. You asked that he was just trying to call me from Kiev, Ukraine. Um, oh, about, wow. you know, two minutes ago, because you wouldn't know this, but he was in the quarterfinals against the junior world champion from Azerbaijan. And he was up one zero and um, the guy had double underhooks and Joey stepped around to try to throw him and got caught uh, on his back and he ended up losing the quarters four to one mm -hmm. against a, you know, guy's a great opponent. Um, I'll talk to Joey. He didn't need to take that risk. He was winning one zero guy from Azerbaijan hadn't taken a shot the whole entire match. He didn't necessarily need it. And you may say, well, if he'd have thrown into his back and pinned him, it'd have been awesome. I'm like, oh yeah. But um, when you're leading like that, you don't, you don't necessarily need to take a big risk. So I look forward to, you know, Coach, to I'm going to tell you that. right now, anytime Joy McKenna calls from Ukraine, you hang up this call, well, you take that call. I appreciate it, though. Yeah, Thank you're you. doing a podcast. I mean, it's, I think it's no. rude to like, hey, excuse me, Ryan, let me talk to Joey in Kiev. No, I, <laughs> I hear you. And, and the reason I was asking is, man, ever, I mean, I've always been a big fan of him, even from when he was you know, back at Blair. But, you know, ever since he's got the man bun going and his new haircut, <laughs> he's like, he just always looks in tip top shape. He's never out yeah. of shape. I mean, he just looks like a machine and that weight class, you know, a lot of people think it's Zane and Yanni, but you know, McKenna is going to be right in there and it's going to be a bloodbath coming up. I can't wait for that weight class. Yeah. He's, I'm just really thankful to have Joey, uh, that he believed in our RTC. You know, he's also looking at the New York city RTC and, and Joey's, uh, he was a 4.0 student at Stanford and Ohio state. And, and he's wanting to apply to get his MBA at Wharton, the Wharton school of business. And so yeah. and he was looking at the MBA program at Columbia, the MBA program at Penn. And so, I mean, we're thankful we have Wharton and, and I've coached Joey on uh, multiple junior world teams. So we had that, um, that coach athlete relationship already. And so he's, you know, he's been with us for over a year now. And, and I think it's just, it, he's just in many ways, we don't have team captains really PRTC is not like we do team captains, but he's almost really an unspoken captain. And, and I think about Jordan Burroughs deciding to join us. I think there's a lot of reasons to that, but I think he, he Jordan knows he can train with Joey, a weight class below him. He can train with Dave McFadden, a weight class above him, 79, and he can train with Mark Hall at 86. Yeah. So I think, you know, having Joey as a weight class below Jordan was, was a big plus for Jordan joining us. And so we're just when excited with the start? PRTC, what we're doing. When does JB move into town? He'll move here around September. So clearly he's focused on making the Olympic team and winning a gold medal in Tokyo. And then, you know, after that, he'll, he'll move his family because he has three kids. So we have to get Beacon, his son, you know, set um, to go to school. So he needs to be here enough time to make sure Beacon starts school appropriately. So we're, you know, we're excited to have Jordan join the PRTC. And, and we feel like that um, I, I've been doing this job for four years as executive director and head coach. And it's, it's taken four years for us to really like 
develop our mission, which is to enrich lives locally and globally, globally mm-hmm. in Ukraine, right? Enrich lives locally and globally through the sport of wrestling. You know, it's taken this time to develop our core values, which are faith over fear, right? Full effort, struggle well. And then the last one is to serve others. And I think that's what, you know, I think separates us from other RTCs is that we're recruiting guys that are willing to serve others. I mean, Joey does all this stuff with Beat the Streets Philly, and he's not going, hey, how much are you going to pay me to do that? I mean, he, he genuinely is doing it to, to make a difference in the world. And so these guys that were adding to our RTC, I think they have the heart of service. And they want to be Olympic champions. They want to be world champions, but they also want, you know, they, you know, have this shirt, you know, they, they believe in better. And they, they believe in better when they wake up every single day, they believe they're going to be a better man, a better wrestler, um, and, and make a better impact on the world. So, I mean, we're, we're excited with what we're doing here. It's exciting to see it from afar. Quick shout out to my man, BJ Futrell, one of the yeah. OG members of That's the, right. of the Penn RTC, another That's great right. guy yeah. who just fits that model of what you're talking about there. Totally. It's really exciting to see what you've built, Coach Slay. Um, thank you so much for taking your time. This was an awesome conversation. I, I'm going to put it out next week. And best of luck to your guys as we wind down to this crucial final phase of training before the trials. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. That's it for this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Spartan Combat. They're hosting a national tournament in Jacksonville, Florida, May 20th through the 23rd. You can register now at SpartanCombat.com. To watch the video interview of this episode, go to Wrestling Changed My Life on YouTube. You can also see the clips on Instagram and Twitter at Wrestling Changed My Life. That's it, folks. We'll see you next time.